Welcome to The Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every week to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. Glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It was a choppy afternoon on Lake George, and Jimmy McDonald from Albany was paddling in a kayak. He drifted away from his wife and stepkids because he was taking pictures and, quote, not really paying attention. As he tried to make his way back, the water got choppier and he paddled harder before he tipped over and lost his paddle. He was in about 30 feet of water, his ill-fitting life jacket coming up over his head, and he was holding onto the kayak with one hand and his new $1,400 smartphone with the other. He says people, other kayakers and canoeists, were passing by in the distance, but the former amateur boxer's pride wouldn't let him scream for help. So for several exhausting minutes, he kept trying to right the kayak. That's when I said, all right, I think I might die today. I think this might be it. I prayed to my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for help. Greg Barrett is a captain for Tiki Tours. At first, Barrett saw Jimmy's paddle, and then one of his passengers said they heard a call for help. As I turned the boat toward him, I realized he was hanging on for dear life. They got to him, a deckhand, and the passengers pulled him on board. And here's where it gets interesting. Jimmy is a drug counselor and a recovering addict. McDonald laughed about it. How funny is it that I've been sober for seven years and I get saved by a tiki bar? And not just any tiki bar. It was a bar full of priests and seminarians from the Paulist Fathers, a Catholic retreat on the lake. (laughs) Jimmy prayed for help from above, and it arrived in the form of men of the cloth on a floating bar. That's our opening today. It came under the heading of... uh, uh, priests on a tiki bar save drowning kayaker. Okay. Isn't today also the feast day of St. Arnold, who is like the patron saint of brewers? Isn't it International Buy a Priest a Beer Day today? I think it might actually be, which is it's all not know. synergy. Synerg- it's not? I, I have not no know. idea. I think but this it is, is. A, news, a news item that was sent our way by no less than five listeners saying, this seems tailor-made for the mocking cast. <laughs> That's awesome. That's I so mean, good. There's, there's good things happening in the world when mm-hmm. uh, drug counselors and their kayaks are saved by priests. That's on a amazing. Float. So um, any, anything uh, eventful happen uh, in either of your lives this past week? I have to say, like, the funniest meme I saw, because all our public schools uh, in our area are going back to in-person, and I saw this hilarious meme that was like, and it applies everywhere. It's like, wow, that spring break really flew by. i've been uh i've been thinking of all these you know it's a it's a weird thing for for parents out there that have sent their kids back because it's just you're just you've been with them for such a long time and you really think oh there's gonna be so much relief and that you know and and there's not and not just because you're like sending your kids into a giant building full of people in a global pandemic but also because there's something about like them having been so attached to you. And it's like, I don't know. It's just been interesting. Kind of the mixed feelings about them not being around, but also, gosh, I've gotten a lot done. <laughs> <Sarah>. Yes. <laughs> we've gotten more, we've gotten more unpacking done in the 
last week and a half than the previous oh, two bet. months. Yeah. It's like, it's crazy <laughs> how productive you can be when your kids aren't around. It's nuts. Yeah. But it's certainly, crazy. yeah, it, it doesn't, it, it's nice, but it doesn't solve every problem, does it? Not every problem. It doesn't. Problem. No. And you, th- you think that like them, yes, that they, them being home is the problem. But it's <laughs> It was like, like the one thing to look forward to. It's like school is going to start. And then it started, yeah. you're like, well, that came and yeah. went. Uh, yeah. Okay. And now I yeah. have to sit with myself. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm a little bit like, we're still married to each other. So if there's an issue there, <laughs> them going to school is not going to help, you know? <laughs> oh, man. It's like that stuff that we always talk about, like people who are wealthy and unhappy are having the arrival happy fallacy in a, in a, yeah the arrival fallacy it's like if yeah. you could just be like i'll be happy when they go to school yeah but then they go yeah. to school and you're like wait a second Ugh. the problem was deeper <laughs> yes <laughs> but sarah i completely um you know I, I completely relate and i know my wife does too it's like there, there's such relief but then also like huh i wonder what they're doing <laughs> right because you've been around him so much you're like do they like their lunch i don't know you know Someone should i put pokemon on in the background just so i feel oddly comforted like uh, i told jamie i was like you need to stop texting jackson let him be at college for god's sake and she's like come on i'm a mom i have nothing going on in my life i need to know what's happening yeah yeah. uh well rj how how is it what's the um update there He's doing great, actually. He's super happy in Austin, has a great little group of friends, and they're hanging out, and, and uh, you know, I'm sure in a totally safe, socially distanced kind of way, but all their oh, yeah. classes are online. Um, he seems to be really happy. Our three-year-old is happy. Our sophomore is okay. Um, yeah, we're doing okay. I mean, Labor, it was, Labor Day weekend was weird, you know? It's like another one of those things that's like, I should be having kind of a good time and being super social, but it's not really happening. It's It was weird, right? I mean, I thought it was weird. Labor Day weekend. Yeah, so. I know. Just, we just what we really needed was just more family time over there. I was That's like, right. yeah, it just felt a little endless. I was like, okay, yeah, so yeah. a bonus day. Are we sure yeah. we can't do school on Monday? Are we sure? Because they've missed so much. Yeah. 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 And well, our daughter like doesn't understand what labor is, and so she like that's not a word she knows, and you know she's six, and so we kept saying Labor Day, and she kept interpreting it as Neighbor Day. Oh. And she's like, let's go and let's go talk to neighbors. I was like, I feel like we need a neighbor day right now. I mean, I'm pro labor, but I feel like we might actually just need, need a, neighbor a neighbor day, day. you know? Oh, boy. Oh. That's actually really sweet, though. Neighbor day. Yeah, that is sweet. Um, neighbor day is actually Halloween, but we'll see if Halloween happens this year or not. I'm a little um, like, uh, it's drunk you know? adult day in our neighborhood. Well, <laughs> Halloween. I'm just saying it's when it's you hang like, out with your neighbors, we should pass out a like pamphlets <laughs> the next day in our neighborhood. Oh my gosh. It is like a sort of a group group, uh, you know, uh, a commiseration session. We, we I love. Uh, we we should. Uh, last year there was like terrible thunderstorms or something on uh, Halloween, and they sort of postponed Halloween as as like in the uh, their tornado warnings or something like that. So the city mm-hmm. postponed Halloween, and my wife keeps saying we should have known that this was not going to be a good year when they had to cancel Halloween. Like that was <laughs> that was not yeah. a good sign. It was portentous. No. Um, well, let's actually, in honor of Labor Day, we're going to talk about uh, work a little bit here. There was an article that appeared in the New York Times Magazine, written by Nellie Bowles, who uh, we actually interviewed for our most or the future issue of our magazine. And uh, lots of folks sent it our way. It said, "God is dead. So is the office. These people want to save both." And we've written, I wrote about this on the website, but uh, here's what she writes. She says, in simpler times, divinity schools sent their graduates out to lead congregations or conduct academic research. 
Now there is a more office-bound calling, the spiritual consultant. Spiritual consultants blend the obscure language of the sacred with the also obscure language of management consulting to provide clients with a range of spiritually inflected services from architecture to employee training to ritual design. Their larger goal is to soften cruel capitalism, making space for the soul, and to encourage employees to ask if what they are doing is good in a higher sense. Having watched social justice get readily absorbed into corporate culture, they want to see if more American businesses are ready for faith. We've seen brands enter the political space, says Casper Takuli, uh, co-founder of Sacred Design Lab. Uh, the next white space in advertising and brands is spirituality. If, and and they, sort of to be fair to this, uh, this is me speaking to, um, to this uh, trend, which is a little bit um, eye-roll-inducing, shall we say. Uh, but the, the, the Nellie Bowles writes, if part of religious work is finding people in need wherever they are, then spiritual innovators should go toward the workplace. Fair enough, right? Regardless of what you and I might think about it, the fact is that people are showing up in the workplace with these big deficits in themselves when it comes to belonging and connection to the beyond. Of course, it's hard to exhort workers to give their professional activities transcendental meaning when at the same time those workers can be terminated. It can be done badly, and when done badly, it can cause harm, said Ms. Thurston, one of the Sacred Design Lab uh, owners. For example, how can we be in deep community if I can fire you? Tara Isabella Burton, the journalist who we speak about, who we mentioned quite a bit, calls it this bespokeification of religion, or the unbundling of rituals. Uh, in the unbundled world, people pick what they want from different faiths and incorporate it into their lives. A little Buddhism here, a little Kabbalah here. It is consumer-driven religiosity. The idea is that what we want, what feels good to us, what we desire, that all of this is constitutive of who we are, rather than community, Miss Burton said. We risk seeing spirituality as something we can consume, something for us, something for our brand. What are your impressions of this article, which describes a, a, a real, you know, sea change or watershed movement? I, I don't know how big it is. It's certainly a something, a, a seculosity kind of hashtag uh, all, all up and down it, but um, wh wh what stuck out to you guys about this? Um, I, well, I, I, first of all, I mean, I think there is a profound need for people to have a spiritual life and a lot of people don't. And so I think that this, I mean, on some level, right, this makes sense that people are needing this. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about women I know um, at church who are, you know, higher level Types at you know in, in these big companies and how you know they've told me about like during the pandemic how they basically were like almost therapists and check-in buddies for you know twenty-three year olds right who were new in the office and how they were almost filling that role of like you know mm. making sure they're okay making sure they're well I mean I don't you can call it a therapist you can call it a mom I mean I don't you know but I mean these women I haven't I don't talk to men probably in the same way I talk to women, but I know many women who have had to fill that role and they're like, you know, either like high up at these companies or their HR or whatever. So, I mean, I think the need is profoundly there. Um, you know, it's complicated. It's kind of like, um, it's kind of like Peloton classes, which I thoroughly enjoy. Mm. Um, there's a kind of, 
encouragement, spiritual kind of connection thing that happens and they talk about the community. I mean, hell, it's a little bit like public radio when they're like, you know, we'll give you a tote bag and, you know, you're connected to this community. And it's I like how I just did uh, public radio in my dad's voice. Um, <laughs> but like it's it's still not actually community. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the thing that I find troubling about this is you know, the beautiful thing about religious community, whatever religion you happen to be, is that you kind of have to bump into each other and um, and love each other. And that is like such a refining fire. Mm. I mean, f- at least in my life, it's been I mean, it's made me a more forgiving person. It's made me a more patient person. It's made me a more humble person. There's more humility in my life. And so I guess I, I just, you know, I understand the need for this, but it makes me sad because I don't think you get that same kind of refining thing. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Totally. Especially not if you could be fired. <laughs> right. Well, there's that. I mean, that's a whole other thing. I mean, there's a reason why they hate, hated Toby in the office, right? You know, like he was the HR guy, <laughs> but like he was also the HR guy. <laughs> like, yeah, 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 totally. So. Well, Sarah, you used exactly the word that I came to my mind or I felt, I just felt sad. Like this, Mm -hmm. just this whole thing made me kind of sad and it really felt like, and this is kind of a heavy word, but I'm going to define it and use it anyway. It just, it felt like idolatry, right? And Mm -hmm. I've got my own idols. I've got my own things that I look to for meaning and comfort and hope that are not, that are not Jesus, but to me, um, I remember someone giving us, I heard a sermon, I think it was Leander Harding, actually, who was a professor of mine at seminary, and just talking about how, you know, the thing the thing about an idol, it always takes more than it gives. Mm-hmm. It always takes more than it gives. And to me, this is just the, yeah, the, the, the religious, it's striking to me that, you know, churches has spent um, so many years trying to learn from corporate culture, and now it feels like corporate culture is trying to learn from religion. Um, and it, it, uh, when you mix this religious impulse with the workplace, which is a, a space that is dedicated to productivity, um, the making of money, uh, that sort of thing, um, gosh, it just it feels like you're opening up a space for so much pain and hurt to happen, you know, because those... Those relationships, I mean, I don't want to say the relationships aren't real, because clearly real relationships happen at work. Um, but when they do happen, they usually happen sort of separate from work, and hopefully they continue in spite of work. But to think that, like, people who are in competition with one another, people who are managing one another, people who have bosses can be in this kind of real sort of deep relationship with one another, it seems like a lie, and, mm. and a lie that is going to hurt people. And it, it reminds me of something um, Bishop Fitzallison once said. He was asked to give like the eulogy at the, um, at, for a man that he knew. And he was sort of taken aback. He's like, but wait, I, I don't, I don't know him that well. And, and they were like, well, he thought you were his best friend, mm-hmm. you know, and, and this sense of, and this happens with men a lot of the times where they'd mistake work relationships for real relationships. You spend yes. so much time at the office and you, you're schmoozing and you're going out to dinner and you're building those relationships all sort of at the end of the day in the name of doing the deal or whatever. And uh-huh. then you mistake those relationships for real relationships. Um, and when you find out they're not, it, it's, yeah, it just, it made me kind of sad and a little bit, a little bit nervous. And I guess the last thing I'll say, it reminded me of, um, we talked about Tim Kreider, I think last episode a little bit. He has a great essay in We Learn Nothing called Work a Manifesto. 
um, where he talks about kind of the Protestant work ethic, the Puritan work ethic, which is kind of, you know, taken over America, this religion we've made out of work. But he ends it by talking about, like, let's remember, after all, in the Bible, work is a curse, right? It's a curse in the Garden of Eden. And that's not to say that there can't be good things about work, but to try to elevate it, to try to make it something more than it's meant to be. I mean, you're supposed to always be fulfilled by, always be joyful in, always find meaning in, to have it be your religion, which to me, that that's where all of this is headed. Um, mm. I mean, it, it calls a thing what it is, but it, man, it makes me really nervous and just sad because people are longing for real connection with each other and with something transcendent. But I just have a tough time thinking you're going to find that through some seminary trained office spiritual consultant <laughs> you know it's bizarre i mean i i keep wondering like how much of your life has to be at work yes <laughs> you know what i mean whole... like that's that's the other question and i, I think, think europeans is... reading this and being like yeah. you people like what is wrong me? with you like come I... on i do like it is an interesting like question and dave and i were actually talking about this earlier this week but as like quote-unquote professional christians there was i mean i think people assume that my spiritual life is really bound up in my work and I think I had to do a lot of work early on, not, and honestly, it predates me being ordained because, you know, Josh and I were married for several years uh, before I was ordained and just even parsing out my husband's professional Christianness and being, you know, a, a priest, a pastor, and then my own relationship with Jesus. And it was really good practice because those are not the same thing. They're not completely two different things, right? I think it would be really, I'm not that self-actualized, but they're not the same thing. And so for me, if that's not the same thing, it's a, it is just utterly heartbreaking that people who don't even have a, a real, I mean, there's no real religion happening, right? It's this kind of thing that's being made up in these companies that that they would kind of force those to be the same thing. It's just, it's heartbreaking. Well, it's so bizarre when when people have been railing against quote unquote institutional religion forever, right? I'm not, I'm not religious. I'm spiritual. But now they're totally talking about importing ritual. Like suddenly, ritual. Like yeah. that's the most religious word I can possibly religion think of. Religion by Wells Fargo. <laughs> yeah, it's just like no. Although I'm gonna tell you right now, if Target has some liturgy, I'll do it. Okay, I'll do it. If oh they need gosh. a chaplain, y'all holler at me. I will come in and come up with some. If y'all give me throw pillows, I will make up liturgies for Target employees. Well, oh you know, gosh. I've I've clearly like a lot of thoughts about this, and I think that part of it is people have made their work their religion already. And so yes. this is responding. It's not yes. inventing an issue. So and of course, you have Christians who've been talking about, um, you know, the theology of work and, uh, you know, vocation has become like a buzzword way oh, yeah. far outside of like Lutheran circles where it, mm -hmm. where it sort of, you know, really I guess began in a way. So um, I, I want to like applaud a little bit of it. it's like, well, they're going where people actually are living. And yeah. especially during uh -huh. a pandemic when you still have a job, yeah. but you yeah. don't have a, you don't really have a church in the same way. And like, right. again, it comes back to all of our sense of like, what's urgent, what's essential and these uncomfortable conversations about these things. Cause like, you know, the truth is if you can't go to church on Sunday, but you still can congregate at your office 
well, then where is your soul kind of residing? And so like, I, I think church people should listen to this. I also think that, um, and again, like I'm of the opinion that the seculosity of work is the dominant form of seculosity in our culture. It's not politics. Well, for a certain segment of the population, not for everybody, as another article will sort of highlight. Yeah, but well, it's, yeah it's, for it's, a certain it's, segment. For a certain segment, it's not... Well, the, the people that I encounter are much more willing to compromise their politics for their paycheck still. Even even post all of these things, people are much more likely to sell out, I guess you could say, or that that's so maybe it's because of increased financial insecurity or just the gig economy. I don't know what it is, but I still feel like uh, work is, is, is a very, very strong thing. And, you know, to be honest with you, it feeds in personally, like if yes. I can't preach or speak or travel or really even write because my kids are are, you know, interrupting things. You know, I I feel like that's been the hardest part of the pandemic for the quarantine for me. It's like it's that sort of identity crisis. It's the it's the realizing, oh my gosh, I am what I do. I I'm justified yeah. by my job and like, who who am I? And you know, for me, I I keep punting back to nostalgia. But part of that is trying to figure out who you were before you started doing all these things, before you had these 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 kids, or before you started you know do had a nonprofit or whatever. It's like to figure out because that's. That's kind of some of that's been taken away, and mm-hmm. those those are useful questions to ask. Again, I you know, and I I said this in um in the article I wrote about it, but ritual is not something that I've personally like have been missing about church. I've been missing transcendence, you know, which I know ritual points to. I've been missing God in a way, you know, not that God is you know you know what I mean. I've been missing community. God's not a building. Yeah, gosh, Dave. Dave, I don't know if you heard that. But... <laughs> The church is not a building day. But the sense of ritual being something that is is—it just connotes anything larger than yourself or larger than the bottom line. Yeah. I get that. And I get that if people have made their job their entire life and their main question about the new office is, can I bring my pet because I'm basically going to live there? Mm. Then... Uh, and, and then someone dies in the office and they have no idea what to do. I mean, right. I get it. Like, let's, let's try to find something. We got, we got to find some yes. language and it may be right. anodyne. It may be antiseptic. It may be completely emptied of any kind of hope. And yet you still have to function in that scenario. So I feel for these people, I, I see the need as being something that they didn't create. But I, again, I, I echo the sadness because I know that, um, you want to say like, hasn't the pandemic shown just how hollow our seculosity of work is? Because all of us had like nervous breakdowns when we couldn't <laughs> go to right. the office, didn't we? I feel right. like that sort of um, that uh, the, the mental health statistics we've talked about really do, sh- you know, bear that out. But it's all it's more than just not being able to go to the office. It's the loneliness. It's the solitude. And it's the um you know, what's been made clear to me is just how much I rely on kind of distraction to keep me going. And in the middle of the pandemic, there's just so little to distract yourself with. You know, you can't go out, you can't be with friends, you can't do new things, you can't have fun. So I think it's also the mixture of the lack of distraction and the the aloneness slash solitude, which is, is sort of forcing people to face themselves, to face their families, their spouses in a way that they haven't maybe before. Um, mm. and it's hard. I mean, on top of all just the, the difficulties of the present situation. So you, you guys, I mean, I, I have a tremendous amount of compassion for people that are experiencing this type of, of pain and I'm not going to exclude myself from that. It just, the, the solutions that are being offered and sort of the, 
false promises, I guess. Um, yeah, it makes me a little bit makes me a little bit sad. But it's also just a it's a sad time right it now, and people people are just doing whatever they need can people do to survive. To, you know, yeah, cling, and that so I understand. Yeah. You know, yeah, desperate for, for a little relief. Yeah, well, yeah. speaking of that sadness, RJ, you forwarded us something about the uh, Clippers, the NBA player Paul George, who admits to having sort of really struggling with depression and anxiety in that NBA bubble that they've got going on down there. Um, it, Paul George, this is on ESPN, admitted that his epic shooting struggles, he's been on a real um, drought, uh, in his previous three games were in part due to his experiencing anxiety and depression inside the isolation of the NBA bubble. George said he has been trying to find ways to check out of, quote, basketball mode, which we just might call work mode, which can be difficult to turn off inside the NBA bubble, where there is no family and the forms of recreation available can be exhausted through several weeks there. It meant a lot, George said, of the show of support from his teammates that they sort of reached out to him and sort of shared their own struggles. This is really hard being in here. It's not easy. All day, it's just basketball. It's hard to get away from it. You see guys on the other teams. Shout out to the NBA for creating this environment. But at the same time, it's rough. I just got to find what's going to get me able to check out of the game and check out of just constantly being in that mode. And all my guys helped. I've been around them. We've been playing, been out playing the game. I had a great talk with our team doctor. Again, all my family were there. My girl Gracie, my kids, just so many people that I can name that I've talked to in the past 24 hours that had a helping hand and just getting me into a better spirit again. But that nonstop work mode, that isolation has had a real effect on him, as has sort of like the lack of sports, I think, in the sort of population more generally. Or, RJ, what, 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 what led you to want to send this? I just thought, it, you know, sports is so hyper-masculine in a lot of ways, and it's all about uh, um, confidence and uh, having a certain Im image and leadership and, and productivity. And, and, you know, Paul George is an all-star. He's like one of the top 10 players in the NBA or so, and... And I just found it tremendously encouraging that that he had the courage to step out and call a thing what it is, to talk about his depression, talk about his anxiety, and then um, for other players in the NBA to to admit that they're struggling with the same thing, that this is falling just as hard on them. And I, I think, you know, especially for men, it can be very difficult to admit this sort of thing. Um, and so I found it hopeful that he was willing to tell uh, to tell the truth. And um, and then as we come into the fall, honestly, where a lot of men are like looking forward to football season and they know exactly what they're going to be doing on Thursday nights and Friday nights and Sunday after Saturday afternoons, Sunday afternoons, Monday nights, it's pretty much wall the to wall week. football. It is. And as we talk about, um, I don't want to call it the importance of distraction, but kind of the importance of distraction, right? Like you can't be just in your head all the time. You can't be engaging with your kids all the time. You can't be working all the time. And sometimes it's nice to sit down for two or three hours and like have a beer and watch a game and get out of your head. Um, and that's not yet, it looks like it's coming, right? College football is kind of coming, but it's it's not uh, what it's been in the past. And I'm sure there's a lot of guys out there that um, this fall just isn't quite seeming uh, the same as it usually did, especially if they're the type of person who has season tickets and is used to going to their college football games or their NFL games. Or um, That's kind of a... So I, I want to have compassion on those guys out there who are feeling um, a little overwhelmed, a little too much in their head. I find it encouraging that a guy like Paul George and other NBAers were willing to step up and talk about this, as others have in the past. You know, Kevin Love, another great player on the Cavaliers, has talked about his um, battles with kind of, um, you know, mental health, basically, is, is what it is. 
And then I guess the last thought that occurred to me, you know, it, it's such a funny name that's been given to this little phenomenon in Orlando, you know, the NBA bubble. You know, the idea is that everyone is in one place, you can't leave, you get tested, and if everyone's clean, they'll all kind of, kind of stay clean. Um, but the truth is they are living in a bubble and, and they can't get out. Um, and here they have uh, kind of everything you think you would want, right? They're doing it they're with all their friends. They're doing exactly what they love to do. They're getting paid millions of dollars to do it. They're hugely famous. And they're still kind of sad and depressed and anxious, you know? Um, talk about the, the, arrival, the arrival fallacy. Um, and he, uh, you know, he minimizes a little bit, but he doesn't allow minimization of his pain to prevent him from telling the truth. Um, and to some degree, you know, I guess that was my penultimate thought. My final thought was we're all kind of living in bubbles right now, right? The, each of our own households is kind of a bubble unto itself. And, and our, our work maybe feels um, like, like a bubble as well. And, and uh, it's like we have these interactions with people, but they're all... Um, they're either way too close, you know, because we're all together, or if it's people outside of our own particular bubble, there's a, a distance, there's a filter to it that makes it more difficult. Um, so I, I just, again, I, anytime I see a, a man, you know, and like a, a, telling the truth about uh, his struggles to be okay, um, I find that really encouraging because I think it gives permission to a lot of other people and maybe specifically men to, to admit the same thing. Mm -hmm. I love that, RJ. Um, I am not, you know, I don't watch sports and I don't get it. And I wasn't raised in a household with sports. Um, but I did weirdly marry someone who's very into sports. Um, so there's been a lot of basketball at our house. Um, but I, I have like my own television ritual that has been like really important for me. Um, that has kind of emerged where every Tuesday night I watch RuPaul's Drag Race with which is not about drag racing i feel like i have to tell everyone that because people uh in another sphere in my life thought i was really into drag racing it's not about drag racing um but we watch episodes together like and like live text on our phone which i've literally seen my husband do with rj before when there's sports games on and when his dogs are playing i wanted to, i wanted them to, be, to beat alabama so bad so bad anyway um it but it's like I look forward to it every week because it is in so many ways. Um, it's competitive. It's, it is a little like sports. It's all men. Um, it's competitive. Um, but I would not call it hyper masculine after a fashion. Yes. Yes. But here's, but here's what it is. It's completely something different, right? Like it's yes. not, it's and now not for something completely different. <laughs> yeah, it's just of a different world. And like, I, I do feel like my husband gets that when he gets to watch sports. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just a whole different world he gets to step into. Um, and I, I, I never thought I would feel like bad that, like, you know, I mean, feels like football's up in the air a little bit like I but I feel bad for him and for these guys that really love to watch this stuff because I know I've kind of counted on that you know little ritual every week in my own life yeah. so um, well, it roots you yeah. in the present too because like that's one of the things that people say about in, in the age of streaming 
a, a live broadcast of a sports yes. game yeah. or an award show is about the only thing left that will take you yeah. into the present and in which you can have a communal experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes. in the way that people's sort of election night has become that for people. But um, totally. but this is the stakes are so much lower. And, yeah. and, and it, even in reality TV, that's still the same thing. It's being broadcast once a week. And, or yeah. you have a set time, you watch it with your friends and you can sort of commiserate. And we've lost that sort of monoculture in a lot of ways because it is a community thing. It is a story that you get wrapped up in. In, 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 in the case of sports and yes, in the case of like competitive reality TV, you, there are winners and losers and you have you kind of can be emotionally attached to one thing and, and you can sure. watch these dramas play out. And I think that it, that is tremendously therapeutic for people who uh, are otherwise going to... Uh, um, who, who need a, who, we all need a little bit of that. Not only the present tense aspect, but to to watch um, you know uh, the, the victory happen and loss, mm-hmm. and we can deal with these things that are going on in our it's own mass lives. Therapy in, in some weird. They're going on in our own lives if they're a little detached and they're yeah. sort of out there. I think, mm-hmm. and so I I lament that too. Uh, even though again I'm not a big sports guy, but I you know I just finished the recent season of Alone. And it was, you know, I watched that. And you were you rooting for your Nationals last year, and your your Cavaliers, you know, in Charlottesville. That's true. That, had the some, Kate some, and I've been watching sports high moments. My wife and I've been watching the U.S. Open, and just this, it's yeah. just so eerie. You know, there's like there's like one coach in the stands, and maybe a journalist, and and that's that's crazy. It's a it's a very uh, yeah. What do we what do we make of this going forward? Well, let's let's go go out of sort of basketball mode and and as RJ mentioned, uh, the entire segment of the population that perhaps we're overlooking uh, when we talk about this. This is from Chris Arnade, who we who wrote that wonderful book uh, Dignity, um, and we talked about Back Row America and McDonald's and churches. He wrote a piece for the American Compass called Dignity to Endure it was for Labor Day. And he was writing about sort of the misunderstandings of work for from uh, that he sort of perceives as someone who spent a lot of time with the sort of back row America, the lower echelons of society. He says, for our technocratic class, politicians and the elite media, their resume and career define who they are. They are careerists, so they assume everyone else must be a careerist. And they look at everyone else working, including the guy in dirty clothes driving the F-150, and assume he is a careerist as well, just one in a different and mostly icky career. Or if they do acknowledge careerism isn't for everyone, they end up romanticizing manual labor. They do this because the alternatives are too uncomfortable, that their comfort and lifestyle requires the labor of people who are not enjoying the laboring at all. Many Americans see work as a thing to deal with that hopefully gives them enough stability or money to have a shot at being who they really are, which is a good father or a good mother or a Bucks fan or a great golfer or a rising dirt track racer or the person who throws the best block parties or a reliable singer in the church choir <clears throat> or a competitive barbecuer or a good solid friend that will do anything to help anyone else out or someone, quote, keeping their head above water and doing it without losing their cool because it is easy to lose your cool in this crazy world. That doesn't mean they don't want to be good at their job, but there are a lot of hard jobs because life is hard, and a lot of people would rather focus their energies on being good at their lives. Work is only a part of that. Let's not try to make it the only part. I thought it was a helpful reminder, and he tells a bunch of stories of people that are, you know, just making ends meet, working at Waffle House, and really, uh, you know, just that work is a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. And, you know, I, I can't help but be someone who derives enormous sort of spiritual and emotional income from revenue from his job uh, to to say, like, well, that would be, that's kind of nice, you know? Um, 
and and although the pandemic might take away your actual paycheck, it it doesn't it doesn't therefore take away your soul um, <laughs> with it, you know. So um, I don't know. What what did you guys? Does this resonate with you at all? I mean, I mean, I guess it hit me in a different way. It just, you know, I come from people who do hard labor and who you know like um for whom their identity is not bound up so much in in their work um I mean I my parents certainly don't fit that but they were like I probably the first generation in their family that didn't kind of fit that model um so when I read about the mother with the child you know at McDonald's who she's kind of set up with an iPad in the booth um, and who falls asleep there, that's like not super far off from who I am. Um, and so like, I mean, I'm related to people who could do that. I mean, that would not, you know, um, and who, who might have to do that. And so, I mean, I really appreciate us not romanticizing it. I, I, I think that's a, that's a very important thing. Um, and I guess I just appreciate us bumping into those people more and having more of those people in our lives and understanding um, how hard it is actually. I mean, I don't know, Dave. I just come from a different place because I, I feel really fortunate that my work gives me a lot of meaning. I do know what you mean, though, because you and I both know, like, clergy and just professional Christian types who have lost their job and then basically are like, well, I guess I'll just walk to hell now, you know, because like, because so much of who they were was bound up in it. Um, and there is something kind of incredible about the idea that you might lose your job, you know, um, you know, being a, a sanitation worker and then, you know, go on to maybe, you know, do menial work at a hotel. But I, you know, I know that sort of living on the edge thing, because again, we, we have, have that in our family financially is really scary. So I don't know. I just, I thought it was really powerful to be reminded about what the daily existence of people who live on the edge looks like. Um, mm. I know we're, we try not to do comparative suffering, but, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, it's really important for me as someone who, you know, feels like, Oh my gosh, you've just had like the longest summer ever. It's just been like a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, so glad we got away to New Orleans to that hotel. It was like really nice. No one was there. And the woman at the front desk basically told us she had every job. So like we needed towels. It was her. If we needed a pool key, it was her. I think she cleaned the, the rooms. Um, I mean, it's good for me to remember that, um, I'm super freaking lucky, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I just, I think that that, I think there's a certain amount of gratefulness and, and also a certain amount of concern, care, and, and maybe even on my better days by the, by the work of the Holy Spirit action that comes out of that realization. Yeah. The, the article brought up for me that classic question of like, do you, do you work to live or do you live to work? Um, and I think all of us, I, I will speak for myself. My sense is all three of us probably are more in the live to work camp than in the work mm -hmm. to live. Right? We, we don't, we don't for see sure. our work yeah. as a means to an end. And there is something, you know, I go back and forth, right? Because on one hand, it's like the idea of spending 40 hours of your every week, a third of your life doing something that you kind of take or leave. It's like, is that really what I would want to do? And at the same time, 
with the work that I do do, so oftentimes, I'm sure you guys feel the same way, it's like you get home at the end of the day and you've invested so much emotional and physical energy in what you're doing, it almost feels like you don't have time for any, you don't have energy for anything else, right? And wouldn't it be nice to have a job that you cared about a little bit less that would free you up to think about other things, to do yeah. other things? Um, it just, it feels so all or nothing, you know? And maybe that's a, maybe that's a lie, but it feels like in in America right now, you either are a total careerist on every level with regards to your own career, your children's career, your spouse's career. You're you're just all in all the time, or you're not, you know. And and if you are, then you're sort of probably doing okay financially, but you may be struggling emotionally and relationally. <laughs> and if you're not, it's the inverse. And is is there is there a middle ground? Like is there is there such thing as caring about your work appropriately, you know, such that you have enough energy for other things and you're not, I just, I, I don't know many people that I feel like have that kind of balance, quote unquote, you know, is, is that even possible, yeah. um, you know, to, again, to, to care appropriately about the different parts of your life? I, I, I keep like thinking about... I don't know if this is, I think it depends on sort of the financial makeup because I certainly have plenty of women in my life who are, you know, make, the, or I will just say the, are the breadwinners, um, make more money than their husbands. Um, but I, I, I'm thinking about this, this thing that happened, um, I guess this is about a year and a half ago. Yeah. I had just taken the job as a chaplain. I was at an event with some pretty high level clergy and there was a, uh, you know, a, a dean of a cathedral there, um, and he commented to someone and kind of in front of everyone that um, I it was really disappointing to him that I was taking a chaplaincy job at a college. Mm. Um, and I mean, I don't know this guy. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, what do you mean? Well, I mean, I think, you know, you're going to you're from a big church. You should go to a big church. And um, and I just said, I, I want to be with my kids on Sunday morning in the pews like somebody's got to sit with them. You know, it was like, mm -hmm. what are you? And so I, I, RJ, I totally like think you're right. I'm not sure that it's so black and white. I mean, but the thing that is interesting to me is when you hear people talk about, and you often hear politicians say this, but when you hear people kind of t give their like, my family was poor story, or even when you hear the parents who, who worked to these menial jobs, you know what they always talk about? They always say, I did it for my kids. Yes. They say, I was so happy to come home at the end of the day and see my kids. And I have to say, Dave, to your earlier point, there is a lot of beauty there because I think a lot of us come home. Those of us who, you know, our jobs kind of define who we are. And we're like, man, I'm going to get home and I'm going to check my iPhone and see if somebody responded to that email. You know what I mean? Like that's, yeah. and we're like, kids, can you go watch television? Cause mama's got 45 more minutes of work to do. Like I, there is some, I mean, I'm just, you know, yeah. naive or not, there's something really beautiful about I'm doing this work for my family versus I'm doing this work 
so then I can do more work. As the yeah, work because basically what you're saying is I'm doing it for myself, my own yeah, ego yeah, yeah, and yeah, self yeah. flattery. Yes. And, and you know that's very common actually among people who are interested in influence as a, as a currency, uh, whether that be a, a minister or a writer or any kind of thing like that. I I agree with you guys. I think I think it's not, and I think it's probably important to say that although Arnaid uh, focuses it as completely as a socioeconomic issue, a stratification issue, I know plenty of very wealthy people who have. Who do not care about their job? The whole purpose as being a financial <laughs> planner is to make money for their kids. And I know plenty of people who have no money who, yeah, who yeah, want to yeah. be a teacher and make no yes. money, but because they really believe in the importance of their job. And what 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 you see is the trade-off is as someone who clearly values with his with his uh, you know blood, sweat, and tears some sort of emotional reward for one's work and spiritual higher purpose. I, I think that's 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 what I've chosen for my life. However, when you forego financial reward um, everyone gets in fights all the time because uh, it's you're, you're fighting over who gets the most influence on on such and such a thing and and if it's financially motivated you can be like well I don't I don't really care as long as I get paid you know <laughs> there's mm-hmm. there's a level of that and because I've just noticed living in the nonprofit religious sector in my life like there's so much infighting and territorialism that that while it exists in larger other corporations or places where people view their work more as a means to an end there's also a little less uh, acrimony because you're not actually getting this your emotional um, or psychological income is not up for grabs all the time. So, you know, this is just more thoughts born out of uh, pandemic living and facing oneself. Um, but I w- before, we, we, we don't have that much time left, so I want to, there's a couple of more articles to speak about. And one is Alan Jacobs has got a new book out called Breaking Bread with the Dead. And he, uh, the, an excerpt of it appeared in The Atlantic this past week, which touches on a lot of what's going on in the country. And it's called Hate the Sin, Not the Book. And he says, as we try to manage our wild dispositions of 2020, we need two things. First, we need perspective, and second, we need tranquility. And it's voices from the past that can give us both, even when they say things we don't want to hear, and when those voices belong to people who have done bad things. One of the best guides I know to such an encounter with the past is Frederick Douglass, an escaped slave, America's most passionately eloquent advocate for the abolition of slavery. On July 4th, 1852, Douglass gave a speech called The Meaning of, Jul- of the July 4th for the Negro, and it is as fine an example of reckoning wisely with a troubling past as I have ever read. He begins by acknowledging that the founders, the American founders, of, uh, were, quote, great men, though he immediately goes on to say, the point from which I am compelled to view them is not certainly the most favorable, and yet I cannot contemplate their great deeds with less, with, uh, less than admiration. Yes, Douglas is compelled to view them in a critical light because their failure to eradicate slavery at the nation's founding led to his own enslavement, led to his being beaten and abused and denied every human right, forced him to live in bondage and in fear until he could at long last make his escape. Nevertheless, Douglas says, quote, for the good they did and the principles they contended for, I will unite with you to honor their memory. What, for Douglas, made the founders worthy of honor? Well, quote, they loved their country better than their own private interests, which is good. Perhaps best of all, quote, with them, justice, liberty, and humanity were final, not slavery and oppression. Therefore, quote, Douglas speaking, you may well cherish the memory of such men. They were great in their day and generation, end of quote. In their day and generation. But what they achieved, though astonishing in its time, can no longer be deemed adequate, this is Jacobs, uh, 
Indeed, it could never have been so deemed because they did not live up to the principles they so powerfully celebrated. And so Douglas must say these blunt words, this 4th July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice, I must mourn. I wonder whether I can even imagine what it cost Douglas to speak as warmly as he did of the founders. He has every reason, given what their sins and follies cost him and his black sisters and brothers, to dismiss the founders wholly, but he does not. Again, they were great in their day and generation. It would be utterly unfair to demand of anyone wounded as Douglas was wounded the charity he exhibits here. I would not ever dare to ask it. That he speaks as warmly of the founders as he does strikes me as, a little, less, as little less than a miracle. But this fair-mindedness was integral to Douglas's massive success as an orator, as a persuadive of the, as persuader of the half-convinced and the faint of heart. He knew how to sift, to assess, to return and reflect again. The idealization and demonization of the past are equally easy and immensely tempting in our tense and frantic moment. What Douglas offers instead is a model of negotiating with the past in a way that gives charity and honesty equal weight. Reading these, those figures from the past, even when he disagreed strongly with them, gave him some perspective on his own moment. And because they left this veil of tears, some tranquility as well. After all, the dead can't talk back to us unless we invite them to. We control the encounter. We decide whether to pay our ancestors' attention. No one demands anything of us. Those figures from the past are willing to speak to us when we are willing to listen. They may sometimes speak words of offense, but they may also speak words of wisdom that we either never know or have forgotten. There's a lot there. Um, and I, I've ordered the book. I think it's fascinating because it feels like you can. Uh, he's trying to, with all Jacobs does, he's trying to find some sort of middle path that is both gracious and honest, as he says, to sort of balance charity and honesty. And do we embrace a wholly uh, negative view of history, or do we, or do we idealize that history? I've been watching Lovecraft Country on HBO, which is a sort of a. Uh, it's, it's a recasting of H.P. Lovecraft's uh, supernatural horrors as a, a metaphor for racism in the South. And it takes a period that so many movies have romanticized, this 50s and kind of, you know, sock hop kind of, you know, back to the future type thing, and exposes the really cruel and awful underbelly. Um, and it feels like kind of a, because there's a lot of good storytelling and, and, and you know, special effects, it feels like a, a kind of a, a new balancing of these things. And yet, th it doesn't seem like, the, uh, the, like the, I the idea here is to turn the past into something it wasn't, which was nothing but horror, but instead to sort of say that there was lots of bad going on with lots of good. Um, I don't know, but w what do you guys think of this? I had never read that portion of Douglas's speech. We, I read it in high parts of his, his, his book in high school, of course. I heard this recently um, because his um, descendants read this um, on the radio um, on the 4th of July. Uh, and I remember being struck by that as well. So it's interesting. I love that. Alan, I mean, I love Alan Jacobs. What's not to love? But like, I love that he's um, that he's kind of raising this up for us to see. Um, yeah, I just get really anxious <laughs> when we tear down um, people who were great in their day, um, which is not uh, me talking about statues because, um, you know, I just I as a Southern Studies 
student as a student of the south i you know i know when those statues went up and it was definitely a long time after the civil war and it was definitely to prove a point and you can do with that what you want to but when we kind of raise up um people and then they get torn down pretty immediately afterwards which is so interesting i mean i've i've read stuff people have said about frederick Douglass in his own life and his own choices i mean it's just interesting right like everyone and that's the thing is like i get anxious because everyone has something they've done wrong something they took a bad stance on some photograph that was taken and I guess what I struggle with is like uh, the dead can't apologize, mm. but like the living can't either. That's the thing that like I see over and over again is like it, it doesn't, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, gosh, I'm getting into murky waters, but here we are. Um, put on, put on the boots as uh, my friend Marisa recently said, um, you know, there's this woman, I can't remember her name, but she's a college professor who's come out and said that she was basically, like, faking blackness. Yeah. Right? And <sighs> here we are. I, it was so interesting to me that she really came out and said, "I this is what I've been doing. Yeah. I should not have done this. I, it was a horrible thing to do, and I'm really sorry. And everyone is like, burn her at the stake. You know, I mean, it. it's like there. I, I, I just am like she suddenly became a symbol for like all of these things. And it was just like very like so just as long as we're clear, no one apologizing is no one being sorry. No one seeking forgiveness. No one admitting their sins is going to help. Like, cool. Just so we're clear. <laughs> like, that was just, like, crazy to watch. So, I no mean, mercy. I do. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the dead certainly can't speak for themselves, but I'm, I'm not sure the living can either. I mean. Yeah. Wow. I don't know. I, I, yeah, I read that article, and it was just repentance, like, to the point of uh, slip my wrists and um, yeah. cancel myself, yeah. I think she said. And everyone's like, here's a razor. We're going to video it. You know, it's like, oh, Trust my me, God. You won't feel any better when she slits her wrist. No, you won't feel any better when she kills herself. Trust us. It won't help. I don't know. That's the title for this episode. Anything to offer? Because, again, this this model, what they're talking about is he's able to be somewhat gracious towards uh the people knowing that you know in in future years uh he, he, uh, that that's what always bothers me it's the false confidence that what who why do you think that in 30 years people aren't going to look at you for some position you held that seemed totally self-evident and axiomatic and that y it's a bias it's it's a um yes. it's a uh, present tense bias or something like that and and uh What's this? Uh, Jacobs is always talking about temporal bandwidth, which is, means he says we don't have the ability to sort of go back or forward in time almost at all. We're living in these very immediate gratification feedback loops. And I mean, Sarah, I, one of the reasons I brought this up is because because you're always reading stuff from the past, like you're you're not not oh, just yeah. Holocaust stuff that, that does give and you perspective, <laughs> which is my genre. Yes, but it does give also give a person death. perspective, but yes. it also gives you the tranquility because um, you. No, there's there's a there's a there isn't an immediate response. You can sort of respond how you wish, and I love that about it. And he's lauding the that that in fact 
Douglas, one of the reasons he was so effective was because he didn't say these founders were categorically in every conceivable way evil. He was able to say, actually, they were committed to some ideals. They just didn't live up to those ideals. And how yes. much more convincing that was to the people that he actually wanted to convince rather than just the speaking to the choir type of totally. b- boosting my base or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah, And that's, yeah. that takes guts. It's really hard. Oh. It's a lot it's harder. Really, yeah. It's it yeah. and especially because it because it kind of involves withholding a little bit of judgment, and it's much easier as we talked about to 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 be certain and to be a hundred percent black and white, and uh, I I was it also made me think of Hamilton, which my boys are so obsessed with, and how Hamilton is already mm. getting a backlash. It was seen as the absolute tip of the top of the kind of I don't know, cutting edge Obama era culture, yeah. uh, you know, a kind of progressive like yeah. re envisioning of America to, is something to be proud of and then all of a sudden like what is it like five years later six years later it's happening it's quick. getting canceled and um and you know that that sh- that he is able to take the good and sort of leave the rest without glossing yeah. over it and they do t- they do mention things in the musical but yeah my boys have learned more about america it's going to be funny because they're going to think of every. I think they're actually. They think that all of these figures in American history actually were black and Latino. <laughs> they don't that. make any distinction in their mind. <laughs> Amazing. Uh, but it's. Uh, I. I just thought to myself, what Lin Manuel. The one of the reasons that was such a successful thing is because he was able to see the good in something that he could have just seen the bad in. He was able to see himself. I mean, that was what's so powerful is he sees him. He knows he's an immigrant, right? He sees Hamilton as an immigrant. Like there was so, there's so much of that. And I think we are so unwilling to see ourselves in the experiences of other people. We're so unwilling. Especially victimizers. Yes. We're so unwilling to see our own sin, like in the, in the sins of other people. Um, We just want to like run from it, but it's, it is like very, like people in the 80s and i mean the 1980s did not realize all that they were getting wrong i mean it's just like it you know you don't realize I, it now I, no i mean it, that's the thing is like don't listen to old episodes marrying, of the mockingcast do not listen to <laughs> no i ju- i just bought shorts that are 2 inches above my belly button cuz mom jeans are in this is not a good idea right these are going to look really dumb in pictures in 2 years no, they, they already do. <laughs> <laughs> RJ, you've been quiet. What's going on in your in that that noggin of yours? Well, I was. It, it was interesting. So to bring it back to sports again, you yeah. Dave, you were asking me yesterday what sports documentaries I watch. I'm like, I don't watch that many, but apparently I do. Because <clears throat> in the latest season of um, Last Chance You, which is this great. Yeah. Sports documentary. Have you ever heard of that before, Dave? It's unbelievable. It's total. G- g- I mean, Last Chance University. What? That's that's the church. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> but in the latest in the latest episode, our latest uh, season, I should say, which takes place at Laney College in Oakland, California, where I lived very close to there, um, you know, during college and afterwards. Um, there's this Texas boy who is playing for this college, and he goes to live with these crazy hippie relatives he has and uncle who live in this house that was financed by this author, this big author in their family who was like a huge pioneering sci-fi fantasy writer, this woman, okay, and and made the family all this money and clearly is like the patron saint of this family. Now, come to find out years later, she and her husband were like pedophiles, okay? And so it's this awful thing, but but his aunt, who again is this Berkeley 
I'm sure super left-wing crystal-worshipping hippie or whatever, says something along the lines of, you know, I never thought it was fair to, to – you need to judge the author based on their work and not the mis- – you can't judge people just on the mistakes they made. Mm. You know, now clearly she has a vested interest to say that because it's her family right. and it's a sort of her livelihood and she's an author as well. But I was like, huh, that's interesting, right? Like she wrote beautiful books. She she means a lot to a lot of people. They still read her sci-fi, fantasy, fiction, fan, whatever stuff. Yeah. Even though they know that she did some really that did some bad things, you know. Mm-hmm. And and I just thought that was interesting coming out of last last chance you. Um, then the other thought uh, yesterday, the reading for yesterday, I did I did vespers in my church yesterday um, from the book of Acts is a story I'd forgotten where Paul and Barnabas come into Lysastra. I can't remember what the name of the city is. And they perform this miracle. And everyone in the city who are all pagans, they're like, oh my, these guys are gods. This is Zeus and Hermes come down to earth. And the priest of the temple of Zeus comes out and brings a bull. And they're all ready to like make sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas because of this amazing thing they've done. And of course, Paul and Barnabas are like, no, we are not gods. Don't worship us. We're here to tell you about the true God, the one God. But the passage, the story ends, you know, that despite of all their persuading, it was all they could do to stop these people from making sacrifices to them and treating them like gods. Mm. And it just struck me how human of an impulse that is, like how much we need to make gods out of men, how much we need heroes, how much we need people to worship and statues to, to, you know, I'll talk about statues, statues to put up. And that maybe there was a reason in the 10 commandments when God says, you shall not make any graven images, you know, because he, because God knows that no person can bear the weight of our worship. Right, or I should say, only one person can bear the weight of our worship. Right, there's only one person in the Bible who does not end up being ultimately embarrassing for right. something they did, and we can worship him, but everyone else, it's like, no, and and maybe this whole this whole cult of personality, this hero worship, um, it, it was misguided, and there was even a, a pod, what podcast was it? I was listening to, I can't remember, maybe Radio Lab or something, but they were interviewing a guy who's a descendant of Thomas Jefferson. And I guess he's old enough that he remembers a time where he, his family would take him to Monticello and he would basically just run around. He would go through all the secret passageways. He knew all the doorways. He'd go up in the roof and throw pebbles at tourists. And they basically treated it like their family home. And he, and he understands the complicated history of Thomas Jefferson, right? And, and the slaves he held and the children he had and, and all of that. Um, and he said, you know, I do think probably all the statues should be taken down. But he said, don't take down Monticello because Monticello is a fitting memorial to this man. Because in Monticello, you see all of the conflict, like the beauty, the mm-hmm. architecture, and the fact that it was built by slaves. Mm-hmm. You know, and the fact that he had slaves and he had children by slaves and, mm-hmm. and the family denied it for a long time. And, and if we can have um, memorials to, to men who had great ideas and had great ideals that doesn't deify them. Yeah. 
you know, that's where it seems like we get into trouble. Well, yeah, um, and Paul and Barnabas knew that's, that. That's beautiful. You know? I, that, and that hits very close to home, being in Charlottesville. People are, this is a very active debate for folks because he's the source of enormous act, genuine idolatry, I'd say. that, that man. Yes, yes. I, you know, I, I always think of this in terms of music and, and writers because he's really saying we should write, we should read books even by people that did bad things or were not, didn't live up to their ideals because what yes. the, the, the undercurrent is that's everyone. You know, I, right? Yeah. I was like, "Who lives up to their?" There's, there's this like idea. The there's this idea out there that there are these select good people who are almost prophetic yes. and and pure, and yes. they produced beautiful things. That good people, well, there was one, produce beautiful things, and that's what we should, you know, spend our time looking at. The the more yeah. low anthropology way to view it is that there's actually a lot of really screwed up people that somehow, yeah. sometimes, can produce beautiful things. And yes. and mm. th- to demand purity or even goodness from our writers or authors uh, or musicians is a um, it's a moral demand that is it doesn't really equate with aesthetics or with 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 the, you can still be a terrible person and do something beautiful which in fact to me gives me hope it doesn't mean you let mm. you it, it, it in no sense is it giving a pass to all these things but it's actually i think it's a much more open-ended way of seeing well well you know god has because think about it god has used some terrible institutions and things in your life to do good things and who's to mm-hmm. say he couldn't you know that louis ck thing you watched you know 10 years ago that you can't stop it was communicated some profound wisdom about your own life is somehow uh you know null and void because he's a creep um I think you could say that you could also look at it and be like, well, um, isn't it a miracle that God was able to do something through a really creepy person? That's yeah. I know that's... Uh, I actually think about Louis C.K. once a week because he had a whole bit about how his older daughter was always like, let's go do stuff. And then he had one that was in kindergarten that was like, I don't want to ride a bike. <laughs> and it gives me so much like grace for my own first grade daughter who's definitely that I don't want to ride a bike type of kid. So I don't, I mean, I totally agree. I think we just don't know how God is going to use people. And I think expecting perfection from anyone, but Jesus Christ or Dolly Parton is (laughs) weird. Al Fred Rogers. Well, honestly, being a, being a, being a rock and roll, uh, student or fan or or super fan is real helpful because everyone I like was a scumbag. Like all of them are terrible. (laughs) And like, if you start from there, you're like, wow, look at this incredible thing they did. Right. Even though they are awful, and they don't right. pretend not to be, and you know, I like, right. I want to read Bukowski. I want to read all this stuff. Anyway, we're going to close. I know we're going a little over time here, but I think we need to close with one final thing about Julian of Norwich. Usually, when I hear about Julian of Norwich, I, I gotta say, I kind of, um, my, I, I, I don't get excited because it's a, no, because I'm like, will it all be well? <laughs> Have you raised children, Julian? <laughs> this is actually on Mockingbird, <laughs> written by a guest writer, Nathan White. Pandemics and the theology of the cross. Julian of Norwich's hope. Now, Julian of Norwich, as Sarah alludes to, is known for the phrase, "All shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well," which is great to stitch on a pillow or make a meme out of, and has been, you know, it, she's a. Let me read to you about her. ours is not the first society to seem on the precipice of disintegration or even to go over that edge whether we consider the destruction of jerusalem the sack of rome or any number of pandemics throughout history societies have gone through many deaths and rebirth yet the people of god have endured through it all there's much to be learned from the past and christians today need to draw upon our rich history especially from those whose circumstances mirror our own such excuse me such as the anchoress julian of norwich The woman known as Julian of Norwich lived as an anchoress during the 14th century in the English coastal town of Norwich. 
also where Alan uh, Partridge is from. Uh, her lifetime was one of significant upheaval during which, in addition to the strife of the Hundred Years' War, internal political upheaval and the Great Schism in the Church, the Black Death was tearing Europe apart. For years, the Black Death ravaged Europe, including Norwich, in a pandemic so deadly that a third of the population, half the clergy in Norwich died. It may have been this disease to which Julian nearly succumbed at the age of 30. Her presumed deathbed, however, became a place of relevatory transformation. She recorded these experiences, the spiritual experiences she had on her deathbed, both immediately afterwards and then again after some 20 years of reflection, and is thought to be the first woman to have written in English. Portions of her reflections are well known, including all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. It's an oft-repeated phrase. But far from merely being a trite platitude, the truth was a product of suffering, relevatory experience, and years of prayerful reflection. What, however, might a woman so removed from her own era have to pass on to us? Well, Julian uh, relates that uh, in her short text, probably very soon after her deathbed experience, that everything, quote, everything seems insignificant in comparison with Christ's love. Living amidst plague, war, and upheaval, none of Julian's dif difficulties weighed more heavily upon her than Jesus' love. This love was demonstrated most clearly on the cross, where, quote, our Lord Jesus suffered for love more than all men could suffer. This was a willing and unspeakable sacrifice made more present to Julian by the suffering around her. Because of this, Jesus Christ captured her attention, and she returns to the, the, it again and again as a kind of center point, the, the love of Christ. She writes, God wants us to know that he keeps us equally safe in joy and in sorrow, and loves us as much in sorrow as in joy. Circumstances, whether Julian's or our own, will change, but a foundation exists whose stability transcends the fickleness of time. When Julian questioned God regarding the mystery of sort of present suffering and God's love, the only answer she received was love. Love was our Lord's meaning. Despite its simplicity, she found this answer to be sufficient. Julian entreats us to give our attention, sustained and contemplative, to the Savior of the world, even the Savior of our world, plagued with sickness, injustice, and division. She exhorts us, this is what God intends. He does not want us to be too cast down on account of the sorrows and upheavals that befall us, for it has always been so before the coming of a miracle. This is a woman who was transfixed by the love of Jesus Christ, and that was sort of her, her starting point and end point, and what she saw in the cross was what actually made her present sufferings. Um, she, he, she, there's a point in there in the, that text where Jesus says to her, it was my delight to suffer the passion for your sake. And uh, that um, sense of love in the midst of being born out in suffering, being born out on a cross, is what um, the, the writer of this article seems to think we could take from Julian, that this all manner of things shall be well is true only in the sense of the cross, which is the lens through which we can uh, really survive or gain any kind of meaning. As trite as it sometimes is made to sound, it's actually the most weighty and simple statement of all because it is uh, one that is soaked in the blood of Jesus. One thing I really love about these women, I mean, Julian's the first, but then there's a, there's a whole flurry of them. So there's a woman called Mechtilde of Magdeburg I really loved um, who wrote around this time too, is that I think we're beginning to see shades of the Protestant Reformation happening in their voices. Um, so it's always very powerful to me to read it from that standpoint, because I think, uh, you know, before seminary, I wasn't super familiar with these women. <laughs> and then I had this seminary professor who told me uh, that he was going to put them at, put all the, this is a quote at Yale, put all the girls at the end because we probably wouldn't get to them. 
Um, huh. So I really had to. I know it's so progressive there, you guys. They're just, they're it's just amazing. Um, and so I kind of had to read a lot of these women on my own. But when you can read Julian into her era, and I have actually been reading this like super long book about the era in which she lived and how the plague was just constantly reoccurring and no one could figure out how to stop it. And everyone was at war, you know, it was all these things happening at once. It's like, my God, like I just, I don't know. I, I, I heard this great phrase this week that stayed with me. Even, um, you can trust God even when you can't trace him. Huh? Hmm. And I think there's there's something to that, that like just trusting in this moment, even though it feels so unwieldy and so deeply sad and unknown, um, because we have the faith of those who've come before us, you know, that kind of remind us. The other thought I have, which is slightly more salacious, is it's a good thing this is the limited amount of information we have about Julianna Norwich. Because imagine if we knew more and she'd done something wrong and we would like all shut her down. So that's just <laughs> all I'm going to say about that. And there's, it's interesting, these women that really get, you know, raised up and because they had a, like a very limited ability to, to publish things and to write things, it's easier for us to deify oh, them. Totally. So it's just, it's kind of fascinating totally. to me yeah so. i mean if you'd actually known her julian was a micromanager of the nth degree she yeah. complained <laughs> yeah she complained a lot yeah right. rj any thoughts yeah i yeah a lot of thoughts i i i i struggle with this kind of thing you know because i um i think about what jesus says in the sermon on the mount about um worrying and about the lilies of the field and the birds of the air and, and how your heavenly father feeds them and clothes them and, and, um, and all will be well, all will be well. And that's, that's the way I want to live. Like I want to wake up every day, um, with a sense of hope and, and, and faith and that God's going to show up. And, and I, you know, um, it's not up to me, it's up to him uh, that's the way I want, I really want to live that way. But then I've got, you know, yeah, I've got kids and I've got, you know, budgets to raise and people to lead and programs to carry out and plans to make. And, and sometimes I do read passages like this and I, I think about Paul and I think about Jesus and I think about, um, you know, they didn't have, it feels like they didn't, they had their own burdens, but that those weren't part of the deal. You know, Jesus seems to be amazingly um, fluid. He doesn't even plan much. Let's put it that way. You know, Paul neither. Like, he goes on these journeys. He goes around the world. He sticks around for a few months. Then he leaves. He gets shipwrecked. He gets beaten. He um, There's no sense of... Uh, um, yeah, planning or, or building or something. And, and I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little jealous of that. And at the same time, I know that their lives, um, were marked by different kinds of trials and, and, and sufferings. And so I don't know, I struggle with this because I don't know where the balance is, uh, between living that kind of, um, worry-free, faithful, day-to-day, unplanned existence versus, um, trying to manage all the details that seem to come with, quote unquote, modern life. Um, and even, you know, Dave, in, in one of the groups here at church, we read that Capon book, which Mockingbird published, The Man Who Met God in a Bar. Um, and I love the way that the Jesus figure is described as in there as someone who is both deadly serious 
and the most laid back person you've ever met. <laughs> you know, I, I think that's a really good description because I, I want to be serious about the things that are worth being serious about. You know, pain, sin, love, death, resurrection, hope, you know, all these, these ideals. Um, and to like be really laid back about all the other stuff. Else, yes. But I'm not sure that's the way you can run a church in 21st century <laughs> America. You know, or like yeah. get your kids into college or yeah. like manage a household, you know, like make sure the internet is running and that, you know, the air con the leaky air conditioning doesn't ruin your floors. Um, I'm speaking totally hypothetically, of course. 100%. Um, 100%. I don't know how to do that. I really want to do yeah. that. Yeah. You know, um, maybe I'll get there. I read an article recently that some study suggests that at the age of 47, everyone just gets a lot happier. Um, that's three. That's maybe that's three years away. I'm like, ooh, could could it be? Huh. Oh my, am I just three three years away from bliss? That's awesome. <laughs> um, do you guys feel me? You know yeah, just ten more years of misery. <laughs> um, I I it's funny. I mean, for years I have prayed, literally prayed that like I could wake up in the morning and not have this like anxious immediate panic attack of all the stuff that needs to get done. Existential yeah. dismay. You know what I mean? Just yeah. utter despair. And um and I just think sometimes Jesus shows up as Lexapro. And I know that is not <laughs> what I know that is not what um julian had but it you know it's it is like it is easy to read this stuff and to forget what they were writing out yeah. of because yeah. especially when people have these little catchphrases you 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 know you just don't have the history written you know behind the pot holder right. and you need it um to remind yourself of why I mean, it isn't matters. it the same with that wonderful hymn it is well with my soul or even amazing grace oh i mean my gosh. These, these hymn yeah, after he lost his entire yeah, there, family there's <laughs> such you want to say okay story. i can trust yeah. this a little bit more yeah lean on it i can yes. lean on this this quote yes. all should be well in all manner if if, if she said it and and yeah. or if he said it, I mean, one of the things that makes yeah. me think of, and I, I know we're coming to the end here, but I remember a f about I don't know 10, 10, 12 years ago, a friend of mine who had been brought up uh, a Catholic, he was really sort of in the midst of really losing his faith or his confidence in God, and he was he'd been through a lot, and a lot had happened to him, and he had every reason to be upset and to 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 really feel God's absence in his life, and and he he just turned to me and said, well, how do how do you what do you make of this? You know, all this pain and my, this parent died and then that parent died. And then this girl I'm dating, it turns out she was, had men had been awful to her and I just can't reconcile this. And I, I said, well, I mean, I, I, knowing now I would just have just shut up and not said anything. But at the time I, I, I just couldn't help myself. And I said, well, I mean, all I'll say is that the, the, the very central image of the Christian faith is a man bleeding and dying on the cross, uh, abandoned and uh, uh, blamed and uh, unfairly treated and suffering and, and bleeding. And uh, that, to me, sometimes is, is, is the, the, that keeps me coming back and when nothing else does. And so for her to be able to say this, knowing that her entire hope was based on con contemplating the cross as a symbol of God's love, not not God's absence, but as God's love borne out in it in in the man crucified, that's um that that sort of persists, and I think it persists in the 14th century as much as it does in 2020, uh, and I don't know what you could throw at it that it wouldn't. 
and maybe that's the beauty, maybe that's the divinity of it. Let's say that's where we end today. A long yeah. episode, but a good one. Um, thank you both. I hope you have a great week in your jobs. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I hope all, sh- all is actually well this week for both of you. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, you guys. Thanks, Sarah. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Praise the Lord.